Well, we're going to be looking at that passage that Caroline read to us before. Apologies if there are any differences in pronunciation uh, with that, but there are some quite tough ones there. Let's pray as we come to the word. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us through this precious Bible. Father, thank you that you have spoken to us. And Father, pray that you'd speak to us anew today through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You always remember your first love. That's what they say, don't they? Well, mine was Gillian Anderson. You might know her from The Fall or from Bleak House, uh, but I knew her as Agent Scully from The X-Files. She was smart, she was sassy, and I had a big poster of her uh, on my bedroom wall when I was a, a younger man. But alas, my first love didn't love me back. Uh, to be fair, it wasn't much of a relationship, really, me just staring at her poster on the wall. But it's true, you never forget your first love. Well, in Genesis, as we've been going through, we've seen quite a lot of firsts, haven't we? We've seen the first man, Adam. Uh, we've seen the first woman, Eve. We've seen the first marriage between them. We saw the first sin, taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw the first child, Cain. We've seen the first murder by Cain of Abel, his brother. The first global disaster, the flood. The first covenant with Noah. The first skyscraper, the Tower of Babel. And along with that, the first unfinished building project. We're going to have a lot of those through history, aren't they? But uh, as the builders are scattered by God. And then we've seen the first patriarch, Abraham. We've seen him receive huge promises of a land, a people... And blessing from God. And we've seen him move from Ur of the Chaldeans with his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot into the promised land. And last time, which I know is quite a while ago, we saw Abraham, Abraham and Lot have been so blessed with sheep and cattle that they couldn't really live near each other. They needed land uh, for them both to, to dwell in. So they had to separate and, and go their separate ways. Lot went east towards Sodom. And Abraham settled at the Oaks of Mamre, where God had promised to give him the whole of the promised land. In this passage, we get some first two. We're going to see the first kings in the Bible. Up until this point, kings haven't been mentioned. And along with the first kings, we're going to see the first war. The two of them, it seems, will go hand in hand throughout Scripture. Here we're going to see the pride of man rising up to oppress other people. And in response to the pride of man, shaking off that yoke of oppression. We're seeing people setting themselves up as kings against God, the true king. And Abraham and Lot are going to be caught in that epic power struggle as kings band together to oppress and extort the other. The first thing that we see is two tribes go to war. There might be a bit of a song theme uh, going through this morning. Uh, two tribes go to war. I'm not going to read them. Uh, again, but if you just have a gander at uh, verse 1, you'll see the first tribe there. We have the king of Shinar, which is Babylon. Uh, I'll give you a map for this. Uh, Shinar, which is Babylon. Uh, we get the king of Alessa, which is probably Assyria. You get the king of Elam, which is probably Persia. And the king of Goyim, which literally means the nations. Uh, people think it could be the Hittites who lived sort of in modern-day Turkey. But these are four huge empires that are gathering together, four big superpowers of the region at the time. 
And they're gathering together to make war. Who are they making war with? Well, five kings of some small cities in the Dead Sea area. So the king of Sodom, uh, well basically they're so small you you can't really see them very well on the map. But uh, this area here, five little cities, probably more than, no more than towns or villages really, by what we'd call them. So we've got five, uh, sorry, four huge empires taking on five small cities. That's really what's happening. And this is one of the things where if you don't get your head around the geography, you don't realise how crazy this is. These are big places attacking tiny places. And we see the build-up to war. Have a look at verses 3 to 7. I will read those uh, to us again. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedlamea, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedlamea and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kernan, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amin in Sheba Kirithaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Al Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazaron at Tamar. The reason that we've got this conflict here, this battle, is that these five cities have been under the control of these superpowers. They've been forced to pay tribute to them for 12 years. Now, tribute was basically an old, for, old word form of uh, extortion. It was basically, pay us some money and we'll leave you alone. That's basically what tribute was. These cities, though, now have decided after 12 years not to pay. They're going to get one year of freedom and then these bigger kingdoms are coming for them. They're going to teach them a lesson. Now, I've spent quite a bit of my week a bit confused this week, trying to think, well, who was in the right? Because, you know, while these people were oppressing them, but then while these people were refusing to pay, it was... And I came to the conclusion, really, that neither side is right. What we're really seeing here is both sides are baddies. You've got five evil cities that God will destroy for their wickedness in only a few uh, years' time, versus four evil empires that will oppress Israel throughout their history. Babylon and Assyria are two of the nations that will take them away into exile. So actually what we've got here is that both sides are evil. Both sides are wrong. This is a battle of baddies, if you like. This is alien versus predator. You're not really rooting for either side, are you, really? Neither side is a goodie, but both are dangerous. But by far, the bigger one is the empires, isn't it? The ones that are going to come and attack them. Well, the army of four empires comes down to attack the land of Canaan. And almost seemingly on their way, they just decide to uh, attack some other people as well. They attack the Rephaim, often translated in older versions as giants. And that certainly fits the evidence that we find in Scripture. In Greek, uh, when they translated it, they translated their name as gargantuans or titans. That's the Rephaim that they attack on the way. They also attack the Zuzim. I'll put some verses in Deuteronomy on the back if you want to check them later. But they basically tell us that they were giants as well. And also the Emin, who were also told in Deuteronomy were giants as well. The Horites weren't giants, 
But they were the original inhabitants of Edom to the south before Esau's descendants took it over. But basically, as this army comes down, they're attacking the biggest and baddest and seemingly winning easily. Even races of giants stood no chance before these super armies from these superpowers. And can you imagine being uh, the people in those five little cities, those five little towns? It'd be like hearing the news, you know, we've already defeated Russia, we've already defeated the United States, and now we're coming for you, Andorra. You don't stand a chance, do you? And the place names show that they're working their way down the eastern side of the River Jordan. Let me show you as... Oh, I'll, I'll show you now. So they're working their way down the eastern side uh, of the River Jordan, uh, going south and then coming back uh, round... Soon they're going to sweep round and attack the area with these five cities. And judging from what we've seen, they don't stand a chance. And in verse 7, we see them swing round to Gadesh, which is uh, south of the Dead Sea, and then on to Hazaron Tamar, which is also called En Jedi, to the west of the Dead Sea. And now they're on the doorstep. And then comes the battle. Have a look at 8 and 9. Then the king of Sodom the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidon with Kedlamar, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elessar, four kings against five. The battle takes place in the valley of Sidon. Now that was either the valley to the south of the Dead Sea or it's possible that actually it was part of the Dead Sea that at this point wasn't covered with water. We all know that water levels go up and down, and the only flat area there is actually at the bottom of the, the Red Sea. So it's possible that this area was uncovered at the time. The kings are repeated, and then we're told their numbers. Which seems a bit of a funny detail, doesn't it, really? Because we can all count. And it also seems a little bit strange, because the losing side is greater numerically than the winning one. It sort of makes sense if they're, you're saying the five kings are going to win, but actually it's the four kings that are going to win. It wouldn't, it wouldn't seem to fit with the terrifying information that we've been given, would it? Oh, but there are only four of them. Actually, you've got more kings. Now, Genesis does some funny things with numbers. We saw that when we looked at the genealogies, that every seventh generation seemed to be significant in the genealogies. God weaving that number into the pattern of history. Four is often associated with the world as a whole. So there are four points of the compass, uh, four corners of the earth. It's noticeable that in Daniel there are four kingdoms that come against God's people. And in Revelation, the first beast, which stands for the nations, is made up of four animals. So it's interesting, but then what would be the significance of five? That wouldn't seem to make any sense. It seems more likely that there's no significance other than to report just what's happening. And I think the same goes for the fact that there are 12 uh, years that they are under their control and then the 13th year uh, they rebel. I think it's simply the facts that we're given. Although the number of kings is bigger, their armies are likely to be much smaller. And actually the result of this is inevitable, isn't it? As the kings of the empire attack, we see that there's a massive defeat and in fact, we see the winner takes it all. 
The winner takes it all, verses 10 to 12. Let me read them to you. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fled into them, and the rest fled to their hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went on their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Moses, the author, tells us here a bit about the Valley of Sidim. Apparently it's full of bitumen pits. And this checks out. So the Romans, when they found the, the Dead Sea, they named it Asphaltes. Um, presumably, well, we have reports that they found huge chunks of tar and asphalt floating in the, the Dead Sea. So it seems that there were uh, bitumen pits, certainly underneath uh, the Dead Sea and around it as well. The reason that we're told this is that retreat across such land would be hard. You'd start to get stuck in the tar. The inhabitants and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they're familiar with the land, it seems like their retreat is so quick, they start to get stuck in the pits. It's utter humiliation for them. It's a little picture in a way of what's to come for them, isn't it? We've already been told in chapter 13, verse 13, that they were wicked and uh, great sinners before the Lord. Within a few years, literally of this, God is going to wipe them out totally. Four of these five little city towns uh, are going to be wiped out. The fifth one's only saved because Lot asked God to spare it. Could it be here that we have a picture of um, uh, God's, uh, uh, God's destruction by other lands? You know the way that God is going to work in Scripture? Uh, the way that God is going to work in Scripture by sending one nation against another in judgment on them. Well, here we see God sending these empires against these wicked cities. God is going to finish off the job in only a few years' time by sending fire and brimstone from the sky. But here might be the first instance we see of another nation attacking another nation on behalf of God, if you like. Well, we're not told the details of the battle, but the result, as we've said, was a foregone conclusion. They plunder Sodom and Gomorrah. They take away all their possessions. No mercy is shown. They take away all their provisions. Which, if you think about in a land where there were no supermarkets, you'd have to save up things for the, for the winter or for uh, times when you wouldn't have harvests. So they have no food now. And we also know that they took prisoners probably as slaves to take back home with them. And among those prisoners is Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew who came with him to the promised land. We saw in the last passage that Lot had gone east towards Sodom and he dwelt amongst the cities. Well now, it seems he's in Sodom and he shared their fate by being taken captive along with them. In the last chapter, Lot and Abraham had done so had so much that they couldn't live each other, live near each other. He got so much wealth. Well, now all that wealth has been plundered. All the cattle and sheep are gone. The armies have taken it all, along with Lot himself. And this is actually, though, what's going to make the difference in the action. This is really why we're being told the story. Because what happens to Lot is going to be significant to what happens next. Because what happens next isn't going to be a rescue of these cities. 
isn't going to be a rescue of Sodom, but of Lot. It's only because Lot is taken that what happens next happens next. Sodom gets to join in the blessing, but Lot is the reason why this whole operation happens. We're going to see a rescue mission for just one man. So our final section is rescue me. Have a look at verses 13 to 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Enoch. These were allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham here is told what's happening. We're reminded that he's living at the Oaks of Mamre, which we were told last time. What we didn't know last time was that Mamre is a person. The Oaks of Mamre is his oaks, if you like. And Mamre here, along with his brothers, are allies of Abraham. Probably some sort of mutual defence pact between them. We're also reminded that he's a Hebrew. Not a Canaanite, not an Assyrian, not a Babylonian. A Hebrew, a descendant of Eber in the line of Shem. All the other people we're dealing with are from the tribe of Ham. And Ham, we were told by Noah, was destined to serve Shem. Shem was to have the supremacy, if you like. So Abraham here has got history on his side. And after all, God has promised him this whole land. So Abraham springs into action. He sets off north with his trained men, uh, his mini army, and they head up to the north of the promised land. I'll show you again on a map what's, what's happening. The people have fled uh, there to the north or gone decided to go back home. And now Abraham steps into action to meet them up in the north. Uh, at Dan, which is the sort of John O'Groats of the promised land, the very top of it, the second battle in our passage takes place. Abraham divides his 318 men, which doesn't seem like a lot of people, does it? But divides them anyway, and sends them out by night to attack. And if this story sounds familiar, that might be because Gideon, hundreds of years later, will do something very similar with just 300 men. He defeats the Midianites by night with 300 men divided into smaller groups that he sends. It's sort of like, this was here first though, but almost like a repeat. With, uh, with Gideon, this was to show God's amazing power and glory. If you remember, God had whittled down his army to one that was tiny, so that God would show them that it was him giving the victory, that God was the one who wins their battles. Well, here I think we must presume the same thing. Because humanly speaking, from what we've been told, there's seemingly no way that 318 men could take on an army that has done the things that we've had described, who've destroyed giants, who've taken cities. And yet here it is. 318 men defeat the armies of four empires. This is a divine victory, not a human one. And Abraham and his soldiers chase them right out of the promised land, north of 
Damascus in Syria. They've been thoroughly and soundly defeated. And it means that Lot can be returned safely. It means all his things are brought back. And the rest of the plunder, assuming we see here that women were taken as well. Abraham is victorious where even kings fail here with just 318 men. But why are we being told this? This is one of the things we need to keep asking ourselves in Genesis. Why is this story included? Well, the book of Genesis was written by Moses in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, but before they'd gone into the promised land. The book of Genesis was written really with two goals in mind. To convince the Israelites that leaving Egypt was a good idea. And also to convince them that pressing on to take the promised land is also a good idea. So why is this an encouragement to the Israelites in the wilderness? Well, it's a reminder that God can defeat their enemies. 318 men managed to defeat an army that has just decimated Canaan. Abraham's mini-army beat an army that beat giants. So if you're a trembling Israelite, wondering if you can take this promised land, knowing that there are giants there, well, this is an encouraging story, isn't it? They have the whole army to take the promised land, don't they? And yet Abraham seems to defeat these armies with just 300 plus men. This is a big encouragement that they can take the promised land with God's help. So it's right for them to press on. Because we've seen Abraham has done it before them. He's already defeated those armies in the past. But it's also a reminder that God cares for them. Abraham takes on an army all for the sake of one person. Don't think this is Abraham's sympathy for Sodom. Sodom will be utterly destroyed within a few years. This isn't about saving Sodom. It's about saving Lot. Sodom gets blessed here, but only by its association with Lot. And it's not enough to save it in the end, is it? But God cares for those Israelites in the wilderness. He's able to keep them from harm. He is well able to save them. If you think about it here, there's no greatest good for the greatest number going on here, is there? God's representative, Abraham, risked his own life and the lives of 318 trained men to save one person. So God cares for them. But this is also an encouragement for us, isn't it? If you've switched off with all the battle talk, switch back on now. How does this map across to us? Well, we have similar issues to the Israelites in the wilderness. We need to be reminded constantly, don't we, that leaving our old life was a good idea. That actually, our life of sin is behind us, and we're not to go back to it. And we're also to remember that pressing on to maturity in Christ is a good idea. Well, how does that passage help us? How does this passage help us with that? Well, it's a reminder, isn't it, that God has defeated our enemies. Death, hell and sin. He triumphed over them on the cross and we share in his victory. That's something that keeps us going, isn't it? But it's also a reminder that God can defeat our enemies. That he did do it, but that he can do it as well. 
Defeating this great military power was nothing for God. And the Bible shows us again and again that actually God works when we're weak. He defeats our enemies. So if we're struggling with certain sins in our lives this morning, it's a reminder that victory is possible. Not because we are strong, but because God is. Not that we can become sinless, but that progress is possible. There can be specific sins in this life that we can defeat. Not by letting go and letting God, but by diligently and boldly using the means that God has given us. Abraham didn't let go and let God, did he? And say, well, God will save save Lot, won't he? Actually, his confidence in God's victory led him into action. And the victory was unquestionably God's, wasn't it? But he still had to step out in faith, even though God gave the victory. All of us struggle with sin. Every single one of us. We need to fight it with the word. We need to fight it with help from others. We need to fight it with prayer. Fight with God's energy. But we need to fight, don't we? Because victory is possible. The cross shows us that. So the fact that God can defeat our enemy shouldn't be a reason for inaction, but for action. We fight because with Christ, we can win. But the second thing that it reminds us of is that God cares for us as individuals. It's a bit cliche now, isn't it, to say that God has a plan for each of our lives. But it's true. If you're a believer here this morning, God worked out his plan to save you as an individual before the beginning of time. He engineered the circumstances that you would hear the gospel and believe. I became a Christian after a youth group meeting in 1995. God engineered that I would be there to hear the gospel. I wasn't on holiday that week. I wasn't ill. But think about it more. He kept me alive until that point where I could hear the gospel. Every accident, every car journey, every falling down the stairs. He kept me safe, he kept me alive. So I could hear the gospel at that meeting. But wait, there's more. He kept my parents alive too. In fact, he'd engineered that they would meet on a blind date. Not the blind date, a blind date. Get married and have kids. In fact, he'd engineered the very sperm and egg to meet to form me. But wait, he'd done that for my grandparents too. He'd kept my granddad alive through the D-Day landings. He'd engineered my other grandparents to meet at a baker's shop. He'd actually saved my great-grandfather through World War I. Actually, come to think of it, just so I would hear the gospel there, he'd been working through the whole of human history. From the invasion of the Romans, 1066, the Hundred Years' War, all of that happened as part of God's plan that I might hear the gospel and believe. When you think about it that way, how can we possibly think that God doesn't care for us? That God doesn't care for me? And on top of that, he'd done that for the guy who was preaching the gospel to me at the youth group. And he's done that for every Christian. He's worked the whole of human history to bring us to that point of faith. He's worked the web of relationships through history that we might hear and believe the gospel as individuals. 
How can we not think that in some way we are special in his sight? Yes, we're unworthy sinners, but we're also highly favoured and special to God. No Christian is worthless when God has worked those amazing things for them. To be fair, no person is worthless either, because we're all made in the image of God, aren't we? But of course, the ultimate proof of God's care for us is the cross. The very definition of God's love. How can we doubt God's love and care for us when he was prepared to endure hell on the cross for us? So if you ever feel unloved, think of the cross. Remember the gospel. But this passage then is also a challenge for us. Because if God cares for us as individuals, then we should care for each other as individuals as well. In the end, it was a man who went after Lot, wasn't it? Abraham, in fact, a man with whom there had been a bit of tension in the previous passage between him and Lot. Yet he risks his own safety for the sake of his brother. When it says kinsman there, literally the word there is brother, even though he's his nephew. God's care is partly shown through our care of each other. He provides for us through others. How far would you go to help a brother or sister? Look how far Abraham was prepared to go for his brother. God fights our battles. God cares for us as individuals. That's what we see from this passage. So don't turn back. Press on. If you've been drifting, commit yourself again to him today. Make today a first. A first day, a fresh start. Walking anew with him. Pressing on to maturity in Christ. Pressing on to know and love him more. If you don't know Christ, then today could be a first day too. The first day of a new life with him. A fresh start with God. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for all his people. He has defeated our enemies. He beckons us to come. Will you come to him this morning? Will you trust in him who is able to defeat our enemies and who loves us so much that he died on the cross for our sakes? Amen.